Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. Thanks for joining us again if this isn't your first time and if it is your first time, hopefully you'll enjoy it. I'm uh, joined once again today by Chris. Hi Chris, how's it going? Hey George, yeah, all good, thank you. Excellent, glad to hear it. And Chris, we've got another guest for the podcast today. Tell us who it is. We do indeed. Very pleased to have with us a good friend of mine from the, the shooting world. Patrick Galbraith is the editor of Shooting Times, for those of you that don't know him, but you should do by now. He's made a huge difference to the magazine and it's come on leaps and bounds in all different aspects. He's a not only editor of Shooting Times, he's a freelance journalist writing upon all sorts of different topics that make me laugh when I receive them on our little WhatsApp group late at night. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here. Good to have you. No, th- thanks for coming on. So Patrick, tell us a little bit more about life at ST these days. So ST at the moment, we're really uh, going from strength to strength. I think the thing with the weekly magazine is you've got to keep the energy up and you've got to sort of you know stay passionate and actually just getting out there into the field, talking to your readers about what kind of things they want and what they're interested in. I think um, one of the things which has really come out of the, the current situation that we're facing is that game cookery is really the flavor of the month. So, you know, people digging into their backlog of uh, shooting times is and, uh, you know, finding all sorts of recipes that they perhaps looked at when they came out and thought, oh, that's going to take a bit too much time or you know I just need to do something quick this evening but they're now finding that you know they've got a whole Sunday afternoon to spend cooking you know sticky wild boar ribs or some uh, some some venison project making venison biltong or so on and so forth. Sounds amazing how, how are your freezer levels at the moment? Um, I've just about run out of almost everything actually I just before this started I went down to Willow Game in Shropshire and they sent me back up the road with a hell of a lot of venison but I'm down to my um, my last packet of venison mint so I'm going to have to come up with something uh, pretty special to uh, see off that lull for the venison. George, yours is a pretty similar story, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm gradually working through it, although very kindly, the, the, the chap who does a bit of gamekeeping for us on the farm on a sort of part-time basis, um, just before lockdown, rolled over a couple of roe deer and so uh, dropped off a few things. So there's still a little bit left, but I'm definitely down to the last packet of partridge breasts. Uh, I think all the pheasants gone. So um, I think maybe for the first time ever, we're going to approach a shooting season with a completely empty freezer. I received an email the other day from a guy who is doing deliveries at the moment of 25 oysters for £22 within the M25, which I was very tempted by. But you know, given I'm just isolating alone, really, going through that many oysters in one sitting would be a task, I think, slightly <laughs> beyond me. <laughs> Patrick, um, Chris touched on his introduction, as well as being the editor of The Shooting Times, you do a fair bit of freelance journalism as well. Just for people who aren't aware of the other things that you write about, do you want to just quickly run through some of that? I do. So I have a weekly column for a magazine called The Critic, which is a little like The Spectator, which uh, I imagine most uh, listeners will be familiar with. It's sort of political magazine. Part of the, the reason I like freelancing is I like to talk about the world of shooting and everything that goes on within shooting in the countryside in um, spheres, uh, you know, which which get to people who maybe aren't so familiar with the sport, but also just for my own enjoyment. I mean, recently I wrote a piece for the Yorkshire Post on naturism in Yorkshire. Um, you know, many of you probably don't know, but Yorkshire has Britain's second oldest naturist community. Uh, I had a fantastic time there with those guys. And then I got a piece in Country Life this week on ration packs through the ages. So it's just really whatever whatever strikes me. But I think the thing with editing a magazine is constantly trying to come up with original and fun content. And, you know, whether that's in shooting in terms of the shooting times or, or, or doing things for other magazines, which are really, you know, far beyond the uh, sector. Your your knowledge on um, on all sorts of stuff outside shooting does astound me, I must be honest. You, uh, well, we're... 
touch upon uh, a little bit more of it later on, but uh, it, it does make me laugh, the sort of breadth of knowledge. I don't know where this has come from. Maybe you can enlighten us. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things of being a journalist is that you become a sort of a two-day expert. So, you know, occasionally the Telegraph will ring you up and say, you know, would you like to write about this? Uh, and so if you want the commission and you want the fee, so you say yes, and then you've got two hours to become an expert on it and a day to write the piece and then to hand it in. And You know, you then over the course of the next couple of years lose all the knowledge that you accrued, but you sort of hang on to a little bit of it and you can get it out at the end of a dinner party or, you know, at 11 seats or something. Patrick, the first question we try to ask everybody once we've uh, established who they are is how they got into shooting and, and maybe a story, if you can remember it, of what your first game bird was. Really, for me, my I mean, my first game bird was a driven partridge, which is, which, you know, uh, I remember actually being perhaps that's, a little bit that's lower. That's a very posh first game bird. Yeah, well, it? yeah, it was a little bit lower than it should have been. And, uh, and I think I got in a bit of trouble for that. But I think really my earliest memories of, sort of shooting by myself and perhaps falling in love with shooting um, was you know when I was in my teenage years cycling across to the other side of the village where I lived uh, with an old air rifle and shooting rabbits and I would cycle back I'd probably spend the whole afternoon and shoot two rabbits and cycle back and make a fairly tasteless casserole but you know through that I think in the way that lots of people um, you know, have done in, in, in their formative years is you start to understand how to stalk a rabbit you understand what the wind's doing uh, and it's that sort of field craft that really sticks with you for your whole sort of sporting life really um, so I think that for me is where and also fishing actually I wanted to uh, I wanted to get a can of McEwen's export because I remember being about 10 years old and sitting down with a can of McEwen's export after catching still the largest sea trout I've ever caught but unfortunately Waitrose down in England didn't sell McEwen's. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> More's the pity. So we're trying to keep this uh, podcast as a bit of an escape from from the whole coronavirus situation, but it's pretty inescapable. And I think that it would probably be remiss if we didn't ask the, the editor of the Shooting Times his feelings about the whole situation and where you see shooting being come September and that sort of thing. So have you got any thoughts about that Patrick? Well I think the first thing to say is you know over the past couple of weeks I've been pretty pretty saddened really to hear from readers who who work as, as gamekeepers who now don't have much certainty in their their jobs uh, over the next couple of months I mean that's that's I think should be our first concern but beyond that speaking to people who are running syndicates um, and just speaking to readers more generally all of them are saying that they're still going to carry on shooting in some shape or form over the past couple of weeks I've been reading up about shooting from sort of in the interwar period I found a paper the other day shooting from 1900 to 1945 and you know shooting was totally decimated by the wars in many senses but across the country people were still going out and they were still shooting because I think at the end of it all, you know, the reason why shooting has, has endured in the way it has is because it, you know, it, it really is born out of something very human, which is the desire to get out there and to uh, to shoot game in beautiful places. And, you know, sort of that sort of immensely inspiring thing. So I think whether it's duck flighting or rough shooting or wildfowling, you know, people will still be shooting. It might just be, you know, a bit different to it has been in seasons gone by. And I hope in terms of employment that, that these shoots in these estates can bounce back and, and hopefully carry on employing their staff. Um, in the in the meantime it's a very valid point that you raised there Patrick because I think um, we've said in team discussions you know the, the, the desire to to go shooting isn't going to go away 
the demand isn't going to go away. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, speaking to speaking to people on syndicates, you know, it might be that they're that they're just walking up the birds that they've still got left over from seasons past. Um, you know, and 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 even perhaps it's an opportunity to think about doing things a little bit different. You know, whether it's uh, digging out a pond or, or slightly changing things up. You know, I think it's a moment for shoots to take stock. Um, but I think we all hope that it's not going to have terrible economic impacts for the the countryside and you know a countryside that very much relies on field sports financially at points yeah i couldn't agree more i wanted to jump in on something you were saying there patrick that we've always seen from our game shooting census is that people go shooting to have fun with their mates uh, yeah, and yeah. it's an escape. It's it's getting out in the field and an escape. Whatever else is that is that going on in your life at that point. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the debate that I think is going to be really interesting is is in what form that takes this season because there's a lot of shoots that you won't be able to get the day that you had originally been taking mm. for the last how many years, and you might get a sort of rough or walked up day, smaller bag whatever it might be. And it's going to be really interesting to, to, to challenge a few perceptions on what people sort of stick to uh, and, yeah. and decide decide to do. And it could, it could be for the better in many ways. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I think I've been speaking to a couple of game dealers up and down the country. And, you know, it's no secret that, that the, the game market over the past uh, you know, couple of decades really has, has struggled because of you know, too much supply um, and whether, you know, what happens this season is that is that fewer birds get put down and people can still shoot in in some you know shape or form and then and then game comes to be as a key, as a dealer said to me yes you know worth a bob or two again you know so I think it's really looking for silver linings at the moment in this storm and there are certainly silver linings out there yeah the the employment stats really do worry me we've been doing some and George and I have been doing some analysis on that and um, trying to update what the PaySec report originally showed um so we've been working out variable spend uh that would be directly impacted through a reduction in the number of days that take place yeah and yeah our current forecast for that we're looking at if you know if shooting if the amount of days that, that take place the number of days that take place drops by about 50 percent, which is very likely if, given that we expect 30 percent of shoots not to be going ahead yeah and the remainder not to necessarily be doing a full season we, we're actually got another survey out out at the moment to establish that but if we have about 50 percent less shooting we're potentially looking at just from shoots alone on employment through beaters pickers up part-time workers we're looking at an impact of around 600 and 20 million yeah yeah uh, including obviously there's their variable spend sorry as well so all the spend on actually running the shoots it's absolutely massive hit to the rural economy mm, no absolutely yeah what i really hope is that that for, as a result of all of this that people who haven't experienced particular forms of shooting maybe they they a lot of people just sort of start on relatively large driven days and haven't really experienced some of the smaller scale stuff that i think we all know can be every bit as enjoyable if not more enjoyable than than those big driven days and hopefully people will have the opportunity to try something new and uh, and really examine what it is that they derive the pleasure from. I was uh, just yesterday I decided I was going to try ptarmigan shooting this year which is something I've never done before um, and that's with a bunch of guys we normally head up north to do a little bit of shooting each year and we just decided that actually this year the one thing that we can rely on is that the ptarmigan will still be there so I think for all of us that will be a, uh, a first that experience but you know we'll still be staying in the hotels there we'll still be going to restaurants and we'll still be supporting the local rural economy in the way that shooting does but we just won't be shooting uh, birds that have been put down and I imagine a lot of people across the the country will be doing similar things or i hope people do similar things this season ahead george i reckon it's time for our uh, favorite round of the podcast what do you think 
I completely agree with you. Patrick, you're our guest. Would you please tell us what that is that you're drinking? Well, I walked around Waitrose for about 20 minutes trying to find a can of McEwan's Export because, as I mentioned, that <laughs> possibly the first beer I had after uh, after I after I caught the mighty six-pound sea trout. Probably only about two pounds, but when you're a child, you know, it seems three times the size. Uh, but I have a Copperberg, and, and the reason I have a Copperberg is... When I had my first meeting with the editor of The Field, who previously edited Shooting Times, somebody called Jonathan Young, who I'm sure many listeners will know um, about the magazine and the job I'm doing now, he said, would you like a drink? And he came back with a Copperberg. And I think probably lots of people think that, you know, field sports editors sit in nice clubs drinking port and so on and so forth. But actually, this is the <laughs> pub in the Surrey suburbs where I was drinking a lukewarm Copperberg and I think he was drinking the same. <laughs> I, I like that. Chris, what about you? What have you got? Well, it's actually not dissimilar in style, but hugely dissimilar in quality and taste. So, <laughs> <laughs> Better or worse? Well, I, uh, I alluded to it last week uh, and this is an Aspel Premier Crew cider. Cider with a Y as well, so it's not any normal cider. Premier Crew as well. Yeah, so, so for those of you that aren't familiar with Aspel's fabulous range of ciders Premier Crew is the only one to be drinking was that bought for the occasion or was that something that you found in the back of a cupboard somewhere which had been there for five years <laughs> so I'm quite a big Aspel's drinker but this particular one clearly got sort of it always got left to last and I'm just looking at the the date on it September 2019 so yes very much back at back of the cupboard but hey it still tastes great uh, and it was given to me by someone who works there so it tastes even better but yeah no, if, if you're into your Aspel's uh, forget the draft forget all the other ones just drink the Premier Crew but be careful it's seven percent and it knocks you quite quickly <laughs> George what do you want well I'm quite excited about this one I feel like I've maybe been the subject of ridicule the last couple of podcasts for my choices of drinks um, and I did actually allude to this particular drink in the first episode, or at least a variant of it. I mentioned that my dad's been making what at the time was referred to as damson gin and said that I tried some that was pretty filthy. He and I, over the bank holiday weekend, spent some time bottling up his slow gin and what has now been rebranded as wild plum gin. And we tasted it again and it was still pretty filthy. And we were trying to work out what to do. And I said in the end, what about if we just mix the slow and the wild plum, which we duly did. And I'm we're very pleased with the results. It's got a very nice sort of light pink colour. And it, are you just having like a cup of that or how have you mixed it with something or what sort of what sort of quantity? I've just got a fairly size fairly sizable tumbler full. <laughs> oh, nice. But ch ch George, this is uh, this is calling out for an amalgamation of names, and you can't call it Plo. It has to be Slum Gin. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I'm going to get some labels printed up. <laughs> but because he'd got, he'd got two of these big, um, you know, the big Kilner jars with the tap on the bottom. I think they're about four or five litres each. So there were two of those, all that, which have now been blended together in a jug and bottled. So there's about 10 litres of this stuff. And it's really quite good. Um, surprisingly good, actually. I mean, it'll do. It'll definitely benefit from being in the bottles for, for the next few months. But for the first, you know, uh, for the first sip, I'm really quite enjoying it. So now that now that we've all got a drink uh, and we can sort of through the Internet cheers each other, uh, I think it's the perfect time to ask Patrick something that, that I've been wanting to ask for a while. Yeah. Uh, on, tw on, your, on your Twitter feed, you often ask polls. Now, a lot of them are very serious and normal for what you'd expect for shooting times but others are very much definitely from you and um i i really enjoyed one that i saw the other day 
And I quite like to debate it because I enjoyed it that much. Uh, so I'll read it out. It says, sadly, the records have been lost, so we'll never truly know. But which do you think Jesus's favourite field sport would have been? With four options, driven greys, salmon on the fly, ferreting or grouse over pointers. So go on then, Patrick. So I think the, the consensus, I can't remember actually quite quite which one won. But I think, you know, Jesus being a fisherman, of course, the, the salmon on the fly was the winner. But, you know, I was thinking a bit about it. I think for, for many of us, the field sports and, and hunting really is, is quite a sort of spiritual thing. So this this got me thinking a little bit about, you know, Jesus, it being Easter and, you know, me being sitting there eating chocolate. So that was where that came from. But I, I do think that for many of us, you know, field sports is a, a spiritual thing in a way. And I think certain aspects of field sports are more spiritual than others. So for me, I think maybe walked up snipe by myself is perhaps the most spiritual um, aspect of field sports. And maybe, you know, a big driven pheasant day is the least spiritual and i think if we sort of think about that and think about why it maybe tells us some interesting things about um field sports and our enjoyment of wild places when chris and i were talking about this earlier it hadn't occurred to us that jesus was a fisherman it shows you what our uh, theological knowledge is like but um i mean of course he was he wasn't he wasn't a freshwater fisherman i think jesus was very much a <laughs> well, sea he, fisherman he parted so, the sea so. so he must be a pretty handy salmon fisherman <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but uh, i was suggesting i was suggesting to chris that um that, that being infallible yeah the notion that even jesus finds catching salmon challenging is uh is quite a nice notion when you've blanked for the third day in a row or the third week in a row or the third year in a row oh i thought you were gonna go you know with jesus being this sort of three in one thing and you were gonna go surely he's a fan of the McNabb. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been even better <laughs> Interestingly, though, from that poll, 29% of people thought he might have been a keen ferreter. Yes, yes, yeah. And I think that's interesting because I do think Jesus has a certain sort of rugged man of the people uh, sort of thing going on. So I can see why people made that connection. We have a ferreter, Simon Whitehead, who's a real stalwart of those shooting times. And he's, 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 I don't think he's a particularly religious man, uh, you know, but he's sort of cultish. You can see people gathering around him. <laughs> so the other, the other Twitter poll that we were interested in, Chris, was the, um, and it's something that probably grates a bit with you every now and again, but the, so it is the Shooting Times and Country magazine, isn't it? And you, you'd had a poll where you said that people frequently demand more random countryside content with the option uh, and ask people what they'd like more writing on. The options being Morris dancing, Bears in medieval England, the Corn Laws, and religion in rural Wales. Yeah. <laughs> so my question for you is: Were there any bears in medieval England? I thought they'd all been killed off. So, um, I think in medieval England there would have been bears, but I was thinking of them. I don't know exactly. I was thinking of them more in the context of bears used in sort of circuses and for entertainment. So that was the context I was thinking of them in. I, there was a very interesting conversation which started the other day on uh, the Shooting Times Twitter account about whether there were actually wolves in England or not, um, because some people suggest that there weren't actually wolves and they're sort of more folkloric thing than um, than something that actually existed. But with that poll, um, the 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 winning um, option I think was bears in medieval England, and on the back of that, we've commissioned a guy called Richard Negus to write a piece for us about animals that are no longer here anymore. Um, so bears, wolves, and the great moose, I think. Um, so that's coming up in the, the next moose. few weeks. Yeah, the, the Irish elk, the Irish elk. I think well, that sounds cool. fascinating. I can't wait to read that. 
I did wonder, and, and if and if religion in rural Wales had won, would you would that have been your forte? Uh, that would have been. We would have uh, probably commissioned a whole a whole <laughs> magazine on that. I would have probably been called in for a meeting with our publishers, <laughs> and they would have said, you know, what on earth is this? This is going to absolutely bomb. And I was saying to them, no, no, have have faith, have faith. We're going to do it. I've got the stats to back it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, do, I do think it calls for a page of totally random content just purely out of your imagination each week. Well, as you say, that actually does bring us round to something else that I wanted to, to raise with you. Um, I'm sort of the Guns on Pegs resident journalist insofar as you can call me that. And one of the things that I've always admired about you as an editor and about your writing is that you're not afraid to, to sort of push the boat out a bit and do something a bit out of the ordinary, whether that is writing something that you... that will almost certainly create a bit of controversy or or taking particular things head on. And there was a particular piece that I was reading this morning on the subject of, shall we say, genitalia, which was for the for the critic, I think. Yes. Can you just for, for people who aren't aware of it, yeah, um, right, haven't yeah. read it themselves, can you sort of summarize what the what that article was about and then maybe talk a little bit about the um So I think this was um this all came out of I was up at home in Dumfries and Galloway. I'm sure many listeners will have shot there. And um, I shot a right and left snipe, which is the only time I've ever done that and probably the only time I will ever do that. And I posted about this on Twitter and I had a a lot of um sort of, you know, it was all about the, the way that land has been conserved false night but there was one comment and it said you know something along the lines of you only do this you know to make up for the fact that you've got a tiny penis and you know I don't know how this person had decided that they had any idea about about this about me but I think you know what they were really saying is that hunting is about making up for some sort of deficiency or, or, or some feeling of, of, of sort of lack of, of of an inferiority complex really and I think this was an interesting point and I sort of thought about this and I thought that actually what appeals about field sports I think for many people is that it makes us feel um it gives us a sense of wildlife and a sense of the natural world as being something far greater so actually it's not about trying to make up for sort of feeling small it's the fact that it makes us feel small and makes us realize that we're just a tiny part of something so great that that gives field sports its appeal if that makes sense so it was taking a slightly sort of silly take on something to talk about something which i think is you know important and perhaps forgotten about or overlooked yeah i think that's a really interesting point and and something that i've frequently said uh normally having failed in whatever i was looking to achieve whether it's catching a salmon or, or missing a pheasant straight over my head or something like that is it wouldn't be fun if it was easy and i think that's a uh, something that a lot of people fail to grasp if they've not been part of the world the, the, the world that we belong to and that, that it's possibly tricky to grasp if um if you're if you're not part of it well i think um sort of returning to returning to jesus um again i'm not i'm not sort of some religious nut i'm in no way religious he just keeps on he keeps, he's relentless coming back into this conversation but you know i, I remember sitting there once uh, during a sort of school assembly so school chapel service and um there was a that passage read out about god giving man dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea or whatever and i remember sitting there thinking this 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 must be a joke of some sort because anybody who's tried to shoot snipe will know fine well that you know snipe are faster than us they've got better eyesight you know they really have dominion over us in many ways and i think field sports makes you realize that it makes you realize that your faculties are sort of pathetic compared to these creatures and and that's you know why we love it so much yeah i think that's a really nice way of thinking about it and so just to come back to the to the controversy or you know stirring the pot a bit um 
do you feel like your role as editor of the Shooting Times, do you feel like you have a sort of journalistic duty to, to maybe say the things that people would prefer not to be said? And to, to I'm thinking particularly of an article, that, articles that you've written, for example, about big bags and, and that sort of thing. Do you, do you see that you have a, a kind of duty to, to, to tackle those topics head on? So I think something that was very interesting was, I think maybe you're referring to a piece um, I wrote for The Spectator about what I would call sort of the hyper commercialism of shooting and certainly some people it was really about the you know some of the practices that go on in order to to make bags even bigger and sort of you know make profits even greater uh, in terms of commercial shooting and certainly there were a number of people who got in touch with me and said that they really didn't think we should be uh, you know sort of talking about that sort of thing out in the open but actually on the flip side of that there were a far greater number of people who maybe aren't involved in shooting who got in touch with me and said you know what I really get that and actually I think that the way that you've sort of um, frame shooting there and the way that you think shooting should uh, happen is is something that I would like to get involved in or could imagine myself getting involved in so I, I think that you know it's really about I'm um, trying to bring people together um, yeah I think I, th- I think there's there's far more that unites many people in terms of conservationists and, and ornithologists and so on um, and and sort of you have extremism at both ends of the spectrum um, and it's really for me it's always been about the middle ground and sometimes you know Sometimes being middle ground will, you know, has been controversial, but you know that's I think a position that I've taken and will continue to take. And that's very interesting, and it's it's really interesting to to hear somebody with obviously such a powerful voice as yours um, express those things. And I think it's refreshing that people feel like they can, and that you're prepared to in ever so slightly put your head above the parapet and, and risk some of that backlash from either end of the spectrum. But I think it's probably about time, gents, that we moved on uh, to the next uh, section of the podcast. We always like to finish with a little bit of whimsy. And so, Chris, uh, the question I've got for everybody today is if you could only take part in one aspect of, of field sports, for want of a better word, so shooting, fishing, hunting, that sort of thing, for the rest of your life, which would you choose? Does this involve having to pay for it? No, no, this is just... Uh, Blue sky thinking. Uh, I'm going to be really boring because for me this is a no-brainer. But it, if I had to pay for it, it'd be a very different story. So it therefore, has to be driven grouse. <laughs> I I'm lucky enough that occasionally I get a very very kind invitation from one particular person uh, who uh, who I've come to know quite well who invites me up to his moor each year. And I must say, I you can't beat it. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, We've had a couple of amazing days in the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm sure like anything, though, do you know what? The, one of the best things about shooting, and we have this debate in the office when it comes around to September and we're like, oh, we must write about partridge shooting and, you know, get everyone excited about that. We start writing about it ourselves and then think, my God, actually, partridge shooting is the best, isn't it? And then it gets to October and we're like, we know, let's get everyone revved up for the pheasants. And do you know what? Actually, there's nothing, nothing beats a high pheasant. And so... I think one of the best things about shooting, and and hopefully most people can relate to this, is that if you do all different types of it, it just gets just gets more and more exciting. And it's really hard to remember a year ago what you did or what it was like. So when it comes down to doing it again, whether that's like walked up snipe or sitting on the foreshore, whatever it might be, when you do it again, you're like, my God, I forget how much I love this. So I think if we had to do one aspect of Phil Swartz for the rest of our life, it would be incredibly sad. But if I had to choose one, it'd be Driven Grass. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I can imagine that, that yeah, the driven grass for, for the rest of one's life is pretty appealing. But I think probably <laughs> duck flighting for me would be Ooh, you know, at home. I've got a pond that I've built myself. And 
it's really the way that you see the che- the seasons change. You know, when you're when you're looking at this pond, and you know the ducklings are born, and you know you see the number of ducklings have decreased from often to twelve to one. If 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 you know if the crows don't get every single one of them, um, and some nights it's fantastic, and other nights it's not. But you know, I think growing up, I would have a great night duck flighting, and you know the the next evening would roll around, and I would desperately want to go back out there uh, and shoot ducks again. But of course, that's not really how it works. You've got to leave it for you know two, three, four weeks. Yeah, and I think when it works it's fantastic uh, and every time it doesn't work it's all the more fantastic when it does so for me duck flighting and certainly and actually eating ducks i think they're you know one of the finest birds to eat and really at the end of it all that's what it's about oh i, I couldn't agree more i absolutely love duck I, I got a question then on your on your duck flighting then which particular duck is it that you that gets you going the most that i most that's cheap i mean i love i really love to fold a sort of a kind of high mallard um i have to say it's it's funny i love duck flighting i probably you know, crapper at duck flighting than any other form of shooting, um, which I think sort of gives gives it part of its appeal. But also, it's just it's just the being out there, and it's the thing of you know hearing them before you see them, and you know it's um, no, it's it's a really wonderful thing. And also, actually, you know, you can go up for forty five minutes. You've been there for the flight, and then you're back inside with your pajamas on, having a beer by the fire. And you know, I don't have a tremendous attention span, so it appeals on many levels. I agree, and the whistling of a widgeon. Uh, yeah, with, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that gets anyone going, surely. Yeah, yeah. And at, what's what's also interesting about uh, and exciting about it is that because you're doing it as the light is fading, yeah, you find that all of your senses heightened yeah, in a big yeah. way. Yeah. My grandfather and now my uncle farm in Norfolk, where they have lots of teal coming in onto the drainage ditches and the dikes. Yeah. And sitting basically in a ditch in what is effectively the darkness with the wind whistling across from well it's, it's flat as anything so basically there's nothing between you and russia and it's cold and it's dark and it's usually drizzling yeah, yeah. but you're just every single fiber of your being is sort of buzzing and the tiniest little sound is just makes you sort of quiver with excitement doesn't it i think also just the way that you know you you start to be able to tell quite quickly what sort of weather will be good duck flighting weather you know so for example not having much of a moon is good and you want a bit of a wind and you know being quite cold and so on so that's you know you start to your field craft really improves very quickly and i think that actually you become a better shot in general in all different spheres of shooting um when your field craft improves so it's a real sort of you know it's it's, it's a really fantastic way to learn to shoot well for all kinds of reasons hey, you've got me changing uh, <laughs> i'm <laughs> i i think actually this is this is exactly what i was saying the more you talk about it the more you get excited about the yeah. next thing yeah so i i think i'm gonna have to, i'm yeah. gonna have to agree with you uh and i'm gonna re- i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna retract my driven grouse and sitting in the splash actually it's in inland splash at my mate pips up in norfolk I don't. Think, I think that is literally about as good as it gets for the reasons that you just outlined. When that when the darts coming and you're sitting on the reeds or whatever, and you're waiting, and you never know what's going to happen. And you've got a cigarette in your mouth. Uh, I don't even smoke, <laughs> but when I'm sitting on a floating pond, I feel like you know I'm always uh, <laughs> there with a pack of rollies. <laughs> yeah, George, how about you? Well, it's interesting that you say that you've changed your mind because while we've been speaking, before I asked the question, I thought I had a pretty clear answer and I was pretty confident that it was the right one. And it was going to be salmon fishing. It's something I came to relatively late on in life. And it's just, uh, if you'll excuse the terrible pun, I am properly hooked. (laughs) And I think one of the reasons for that is, as Patrick mentioned about um, 
about the uh, duck flighting that when it doesn't go right, it just means that when it does go right, it's even more special. Yeah. So while you guys were, were explaining your, your choices, I cycled through about four or five things. And I thought, God, yeah, I do love driven partridges. They're just fantastic. And then I thought, yeah, but actually I had as much fun sitting in a wood between Christmas and New Year, shooting half a dozen pigeons, roost shooting. And so I honestly... As you say, Chris, every time you think of another thing, that becomes the thing that you want to do most. And having put forward the question, I now can't definitively say what my answer would be. <laughs> but I think I wouldn't complain if some if somebody said you can only shoot pigeons for the rest of your life. I'd be very happy with that. Yeah, I agree. That would be fine. Tell you what, I would be devastated if you told me that I had to do for the rest of my life. Would be uh, driven moose shooting. <laughs> I got I got Im- invited to Finland. I got, I got invited to Finland to go driven moose shooting, and uh, you know I, I don't know why, but I didn't read up about Finland, and I didn't appreciate that a sort of little pair of tweed breeks and a jumper wouldn't really quite cut it. So <laughs> I turned up there absolutely freezing my bollocks off, and I also you know first drive I had the gun out and I thought right I'm going to be you know I'm going to slot right and left moose here. Three days later. Hadn't seen one moose. I was really <laughs> devastated. Uh, and then I and then I flew back and I and I couldn't tell you, you know, what a moose looks like to this day. But apparently there were there were some there were some out there. But you know, I'm sure that lots of listeners have done it and have had a fantastic time. That, that's a, that's a proper wild shooting trip. That when the first time you see the moose is while you're sitting in a Ryanair plastic seat, googling it on Google Images. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. No, it was uh, it was fun. We all ended up we all ended up naked in the sauna. That was it. Yeah, so it wasn't all it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. This is where your article inspiration comes from, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. There's a really good picture of me when I'm aged about twenty three surrounded by lots of grizzled old men from the sort of British world of shooting. And, you know, it looks, uh, yeah, it's, it's frightening. Looking it back sounds on it. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, look, Patrick, really good to have you on. And um, uh, well, look, I'll look forward to the next time we're actually able to meet up and have a beer. Um, hopefully yeah. not too, not too long from now, but uh, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, just to reiterate that, Patrick, thank you ever so much for joining us. And um, thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back again soon with another podcast. In the meantime, if you don't already, visit the Guns on Pegs website, sign up to our newsletter, follow us on Instagram at Guns on Pegs and follow us on Facebook for all the latest content and when the next podcast will be available. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Wow. <laughs>